When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. She minted coins in both their names, with their heads shown side by side. But her regency was never really accepted. I mean, how could you ever trust a queen who was willing to murder a son? And now that he was old enough, he'd decided to make her pay. It was pretty straightforward. The entire court was on the same page, and they conspired to kill his mother and place him on the throne which is how King Ariarthes VI gained control of Cappadocia. As I mentioned a few episodes back, Queen Nysa of Cappadocia had poisoned five sons in order to rule through the youngest. So getting rid of her was both justified and long overdue. But there was one small entanglement. Nysa was the sister of the Pontic king Mithridates V, who was maybe the only person in the world who actually regretted her death. Or maybe he just regretted losing his influence in Cappadocia. Either way, Mithridates suggested that, if he wanted to keep their relationship friendly, Ariarthes should marry his eldest daughter, the Pontic princess Laodice. Ariarthes agreed, the deed was done, and the situation calmed back down which was about the time they got the news about the royal bloodshed in Syria. So, let's talk about the talk. And I don't just mean how did Thea reveal to her subjects that she'd killed her son and taken the throne. That part may have not actually been that bad. At this point, Thea really only controlled the city of Ptolemaeus Acco while Alexander Zabinus held everything else. 
so her audience was both limited and sympathetic. A credible tale of self-defense, or maybe some unfortunate accident, was likely all she needed to calm things down. No, I'm talking about the real challenge. Explaining the death of Seleucus V to his younger brother Antiochus, and, at the exact same time, convincing the boy to come back home. Two years earlier, in 128, they had shipped Antiochus to Athens to protect him from Alexander Zabinus. And shortly after Seleucus was killed, Thea realized, or was strongly advised, that if she really wanted to keep the throne, she needed the fiction of a regency. Now, if I were trying to bring Antiochus home, I'd probably either tell him nothing, other than just come home right now, or I'd put a pretty convincing tale in the hands of a trusted messenger. The goal was to get Antiochus to Syria and under Thea's direct control before he learned or even suspected the truth. If he did come back, Thea'd have to at least pretend to be sharing royal power. And to be honest, as a 38-year-old Ptolemaic princess and Seleucid queen who'd just killed a son to take the throne, the prospect may have seemed a little bit galling. Which is probably why, during this brief window, Thea allowed herself one small indulgence. What did she do? Well, she ordered the mint at Ptolemaeus Acco to strike coins in her image alone. The inscriptions name her as Queen Cleopatra Thea Euateria, meaning the good harvest or a fruitful season, with a matching cornucopia on the reverse. The coins were only minted for a very short time, because as she'd predicted later that year, her son returned to Syria. In 126, Antiochus was 17, and though he'd eventually attract a couple of nicknames, at the moment he just had one. It was Grepus, or Hooknose, and based on his coinage, you'll get no argument from me. If Antiochus knew what had happened to his brother, then devotion to his mother or a lust for power had outweighed concerns for his safety. If, on the other hand, he'd been told a lie, it wouldn't take long once he got back home for someone to tell him the truth. Knowing this, Thea likely made a preemptive strike and told him some version herself. At which point Antiochus had a decision to make. Turn on his mother and likely share his brother's fate, or go along with her plan to co-rule Syria. Of course, by co-rule, I really mean follow Thea's orders and take up whatever military role was needed. And by Syria, I really just mean Ptolemaeus Acco, because, yeah, Alexander Zabinus. It's easy to picture all the variables spinning around in Antiochus's head. Fear, ambition, loyalty to his mother, loyalty to his father and brother, loyalty to his dynasty, practicality, and likely a great deal of anger. But in the end, whatever his reasons, he agreed to support his mother. 
Antiochus was elevated to the Syrian kingship with the throne name of Antiochus VIII. The coin struck to commemorate the occasion left little doubt as to who was in charge. They showed Cleopatra Thea prominent in the forefront, with the sliver of Antiochus just behind her, often with the tip of his nose cut off. But apart from that, the coins depicted mother and son ruling in total harmony, an initial propaganda shot in the war to take back Syria. And shortly afterward, Thea and Antiochus got their first real piece of good news. Ptolemy Physcon had withdrawn support from his client, Alexander Zabinus. According to Diodorus Siculus, the 58-year-old Ptolemy Physcon began to repent of his former cruelties and endeavored to regain the people's love and favor by acts of clemency. Now, you and I have come to know Ptolemy Physcon pretty well over the course of this series, and I'm going to have to call BS on that one. But I can believe a few other things. First off, while he'd spent a huge portion of his life fighting his family for control of Egypt, and, okay, Cyprus, Physcon had never shown the slightest interest in trying to conquer Syria. What Fiscon likely wanted most was to rule as pharaoh over a united Egypt and ensure that his sons by Cleopatra III would eventually inherit his throne. But accomplishing that meant doing the impossible, reconciling with his sister and former wife, Cleopatra II, whose sons he'd killed and, in one case, dismembered, and whose daughter he'd forcibly taken. The partisans of Cleopatra II still held the capital of Alexandria, while Cleopatra herself was in Ptolemaeus Acco with her daughter, Cleopatra Thea. So if Physcon wanted to reconcile with his sister, he'd need Thea's help to do so. And again, Physcon had nothing against Thea ruling Syria. The whole Zabinus thing was just some freaky sideshow. Fiscon's goal was to find some arrangement where everyone got what they wanted. I mean, at the end of the day, we're all just family, right? In this context, withdrawing support from Alexander Zabinus was likely a show of good faith. Though it's worth noting that Fiscon was abandoning Alexander Zabinus in the exact same way that Ptolemy VI had abandoned Alexander Ballas. We don't have much detail on the following year, 125 BC, but it was likely defined by two main threads. The first was ongoing negotiations between Cleopatra Thea, Ptolemy Physcon, and Cleopatra II on the future of Egypt and Syria. Other figures, Thea's son Antiochus VIII, and Physcon's wife Cleopatra III, may have played some minor role but it's pretty obvious who were the major players. The second thread of 125 was Thea gradually extending control from Ptolemaeus outward into Syria. Doing so relied in part on leveraging Seleucid loyalty, particularly toward Thea's dead husband, Antiochus VII, along with personal relationships, 
promises, bribes, and the selective application, or at least the threat, of military force. One prominent aspect, somewhat ironically, was inducing people to back her side by granting them independence, which sometimes meant giving formal ratification to a situation that already existed. According to historian John D. Granger, by 126, the Phoenician cities of Aradus, Tyre, and possibly Sidon had all declared independence, reflecting the collapse of Seleucid authority on the death of Antiochus VII. There was also the city of Philadelphia, modern Amman, Jordan, which had already been independent for years under the tyrant Xenocotylus. Sometime in the 120s BC, Cotylus also extended his control to the nearby city of Gerasa. The Judeans, as I mentioned, were also independent, and had recently captured the city of Madaba and annexed the region of Idumea. There were also new players outside the bounds of traditional Seleucid authority. I've mentioned ongoing penetration and settlement of Syrian lands east of the Jordan by Nabataean tribes. And let's not forget the Emesenes, who'd already played important roles in the fall of Alexander Ballas and the rise of Diodotus Tryphon. Then there was the challenge of former satrapies moving toward independent kingships. Way back in 130 BC, Theod learned of the death of Ptolemy, the satrap of Comagene just north of Syria. He was succeeded as governor by his son, Samis, though it's unclear whether Thea or the Seleucids in general had been consulted prior to the move. At the time, the issue had been put on hold until after Antiochus's return. But after Antiochus's death in Media, Comagene declared independence under its new king, Samis I. Then there's our old friend Hispiosenes of Cherax. I mentioned that when Antiochus VII had marched east, he'd left Hispiosenes in charge of the Gulf. Shortly after Antiochus's death, Hispiosenes took the title of king, not only of the Cherusina, but of all of Babylonia. After the death of Phraates II, Hispiosenes also captured Seleucia on the Tigris and invaded Elemius. So, on the bright side, a Hellenistic ruler was back in control of southern Mesopotamia. But that ruler was an independent king who didn't answer to Thea. Between talks on the future of Egypt and Syria and reasserting legitimist control, it's safe to call 125 BC the year of negotiation. At least some of the talks on Egypt and Syria may have been face-to-face. After all, if Physcon and Cleopatra III were based in Cyprus, hopping over to Ptolemaeus Acco was barely an inconvenience. So there's a decent chance that the future of both kingdoms was decided by a clutch of Ptolemy's driving hard bargains in a city named after their founder. However it happened, by 124, the final agreements were made. The main outcome for Egypt was that, and do not ask me how, 
Ptolemy Physcon and Cleopatra II agreed to publicly reconcile and rule the kingdom together, alongside Cleopatra III. But the biggest winner, surprise, surprise, was Cleopatra Thea. According to Justin, as part of the terms, Physcon proceeded to devote his entire strength to the destruction of Zabinus's kingdom. He therefore sent assistance to Grepus on a massive scale, and also gave him the hand of his daughter Tryphena in marriage. At 17, Tryphena was the eldest daughter of Ptolemy Physcon and Cleopatra III, and a reasonable match for Thea's son, the 19-year-old Grepus. It's probably also worth mentioning that Physcon and Cleopatra III had two younger daughters, named Cleopatra IV and Cleopatra Selene, who were 14 and 11, respectively. One main outcome of Tryphena marrying Grepus was that any offspring would have a claim to the Egyptian throne. But with two sons by Cleopatra III already on deck— the 19-year-old Ptolemy Lathyros and 16-year-old Ptolemy Alexander, Physcon must have felt the risk was manageable. Equally important was Physcon agreeing to clean up his own mess by offering Thea enough gold and troops to overcome Zabinus. And while withdrawing his backing hadn't had much impact, actively trying to destroy Alexander was an entirely different ballgame. As Justin remarks, when everyone saw Grepus equipped with the resources of Egypt, they began little by little to defect from Zabinus. City by city, tribe by tribe, and official by official, Thea and Grepus began to reclaim the kingdom. 123 BC brought a final decisive engagement. Justin reports that then came the battle between the kings, following which the defeated Zabinus fled to Antioch. Like other kings and pretenders down through the years, Zabinus quickly realized that the city couldn't really be counted on to mount an effective defense. So instead, he drew on centuries of Seleucid tradition and decided to plunder a temple. According to historian Michael Taylor, the robbing of temples by Seleucid kings harkened back to the dynasty's founder. Seleucus I is recorded as plundering the Temple of Nabu in Borsippa, likely to help fund the Battle of Ipsus, as well as the Temple of Anatit in Ecbatana. Antiochus III had robbed the same Temple of Anatit, as well as the Elemian Temple of Bel the act that cost him his life. His son, Seleucus IV, had sent his chief advisor, Heliodorus, to plunder the Temple of Jerusalem, an attempt that failed and, according to historian Benjamin Skolnick, may have led to his overthrow. Seleucus IV's brother and successor, Antiochus IV, was a virtual temple-robbing machine looting temples in Babylon, Jerusalem, and Bambyche. But like his father, it was his attempt to rob an Elemian temple that eventually led to his death. So, let's get back to Zabinus in Antioch. According to Justin, 
Finding himself short of money and the troops without pay, Zabinus ordered the removal of the solid gold statue of Victory in the Temple of Zeus. And to give him his due, it was novel to plunder a Greek temple in a Greco-Macedonian city. Justin continues that Zabinus ordered the statue to be dragged off in secret. But he was surprised in his sacrilegious act and forced to flee when a crowd converged on the spot. Diodorus continues the story. Zabinus managed to escape with a few followers and headed toward Seleucia Pieria. But the Seleucians, who had heard about the sacrilege he had committed, shut their gates against him. So, having failed in this attempt also, he hurried along the seacoast toward Posidaeum. At this point, Zabinus's main goal was to find a ship and get the hell out of Syria. But he was deserted by his men, captured by bandits, and sold on to Grepus's forces. The soldiers put him in chains and hauled him before Grepus, who ordered him put to death. So, victory, and after that, reunification, under Grepus and Thea, was the only game in town. During 123 and 122, Granger notes that coins were minted for Grepus and Thea at Sidon, Ashkelon, Damascus, and, most importantly, the capital of Antioch. Cilicia was already loyal. But Aradus, Tyre, Judea, and the Arab tribes maintained their independence. As Granger notes, what remained was a much mutilated kingdom, but at least Grepus didn't have to fight anyone for it. Beyond Edessa, off to the east, came rumors of loss and recovery. After his death back in 128, Phraates II had been succeeded by his uncle, Artabanus I. The new king had fought a holding action against nomadic tribes for several years, but had finally fallen in battle against the Yuexi. The threat was becoming existential, with the Parthians on the verge of being overrun, absorbed, or even destroyed. But in 123, Artabanus was succeeded by his son, Mithridates II. It was clearly an auspicious name, and to the surprise of pretty much everyone, he'd quickly begun to earn it. For reasons that are unclear, shifting events on his eastern border allowed Mithridates to come back west at a very propitious time. Hispeosines, the king of southern Mesopotamia, had just died the previous year at the age of 87. Mithridates used the occasion to attack his positions in Seleucia and Babylon and drive all Cherusene forces back to the Gulf. In 121, the year of our story, coins of Hispeosines were overstruck with images of Mithridates II signaling the entire region was now under Parthian control. For the Seleucids, this was pretty dispiriting. But it wasn't an immediate threat, and all the players could take a breath and turn one eye toward the future. 
According to Granger, this momentary luxury of internal stability was the work of Cleopatra Thea. Since neither Seleucus V nor Antiochus VIII would probably have been able to accomplish this. To which I'd add Demetrius II, who was seldom more than a walking, talking liability. In 121, Grippus was 22 years old and had been co-ruling Syria for around five years. He was also married to the very legitimate Ptolemaic princess, Tryphena. With Zabinus dead, Syria calm, and Grippus totally of age to rule, there was very little need or desire to submit to Thea's authority. If you believe the ancient sources, Thea was well aware of the danger and decided on striking first. According to Justin, after recovering his father's throne and being freed from threats from abroad, Grippus became the target of his mother's treachery. Thea set before him a cup of poison when he was returning from exercise. Grippus, however, had been forewarned of the plot, and, pretending to challenge his mother on a point of courtesy, bade her drink it herself. She refused, and he insisted. And I'm sorry, but at this point, they're basically just ripping off Hamlet. Justin reports that, finally, Grippus brought forward his informant, and openly accused his mother declaring that the only means that remained to her of clearing herself of the crime was to drink what she had offered her son. And imagine what a moment of sheer blind panic. Locking eyes with a second son she'd tried to kill and finding herself completely outmaneuvered, with no choice left but to finish the scene. As Justin records, so the queen was beaten by a crime that recoiled on its author and died by the poison she'd prepared for another. At the time of her death, Cleopatra Thea was 43 and had ruled the kingdom on and off for 29 years. If she'd convinced Antiochus VII to not go off east or Demetrius II to not invade Egypt— the Syrian kingdom she'd left behind would have likely been much stronger. But her final legacies, peace with Egypt, a united Syria, and Grippus's marriage to Queen Tryphena wouldn't have to be enough. Thea did have one more legacy. Her son by Antiochus VII, the 12-year-old Antiochus. Sent to Sisychus in Anatolia to protect him from Alexander Zabinus, the boy was commonly known as Sisychanus. And though he was young, he'd eventually show the reckless fire that marked his dynasty by seeking revenge against his half-brother Grippus for the murder of Cleopatra Thea. So, this is technically the end of our story. My goal was to trace the decline of the Seleucid Empire through the life and actions of a witness and participant, the Ptolemaic princess and Seleucid queen, Cleopatra Thea. Like I noted at the beginning, the Seleucid Empire of Thea's time didn't have much in the way of admirable characters. 
Great statesmen or innovators or builders, or even great warriors. With the exception of maybe Antiochus VII and a few of the Parthians and Bactrians. But I feel like I delivered on the ambition, violence, intrigue, and betrayal. Interesting times and interesting figures. And I think I totally delivered on all the fun nicknames. The purchased one? I mean, come on. But, just like I wrote a two-part prologue covering the Empire's foundation and rise, I'm planning to write a three-part epilogue covering its final destruction. So, stay tuned for that starting next episode when we'll cover the longest-lasting Seleucid civil war, one fought by the sons of Thea.